Welcome back to the Psychedelics in Medicine podcast, where we discuss the science of psychedelic and psychoactive substances in a therapeutic context with leading academics at the top of their field. The word psychedelic comes from the English word psyche for mind, originally from the ancient Greek word psyche, meaning life, breath or soul, as well as delia for manifesting, hence a psychedelic experience as a mind manifesting one. By contrast, a lower dose psychedelic trip could be termed psycholytic, lytic coming from the Greek lysis for dissolving, hence a mind dissolving experience. Since the beginning of the psychedelic renaissance, Western culture has begun to appreciate the therapeutic potential of psychedelic substances. However, questions related to ideal dose still remain at large. In North America, high dose psychedelic therapy has become common practice. However, this is in fact a large deviation from the original low dose work conducted by Hoffman in the early 20th century, which much closer resembled a psycholytic approach. In today's episode, we'll discuss the rich history of psycholytic therapy, its similarities, differences, advantages and disadvantages in comparison to psychedelic or intactogenic assisted psychotherapies and its possible mechanisms of actions and much more. My name is Ben Claydon and I'm an undergraduate at the University of York studying natural sciences specialising in neuroscience. I'm the president of my university's psychedelic society and I'm the co-chair for Drug Sciences Student Society Network. Today, I'm once again joined by Dr. Torsten Passi. Dr. Passi is a German psychiatrist, professor at Hanover Medical School and is an expert in altered states of consciousness. In December 2022, Torsten, alongside colleagues, published a review article titled Low-Dose Psycholytic Therapy, a Neglected Approach, discussing the history, current applications and future directions of psycholytic therapy. Welcome back to the show, Torsten. Yeah, hi. Welcome to you too. To begin with, Torsten, are you able to give us an overview of the early psychedelic studies and how we've ended up where we are now? Yeah, so the early studies with psychedelics, we have to go back far, uh, kind of 120 years. So the earliest um, self-experiments have been by Western scientists, have been uh, conducted in the late uh, 19th century. And there was also a German psychologist named uh, Dr. Um, uh, Schrenk Notzing, and his uh, uh, treatise about the use of drugs in uh, relation to hypnotism was the earliest account of uh, using these substances in a therapeutic manner in the Western Hemisphere. Um, later on, during the 1920s, there was much research going on with the um, uh, um, uh, mescaline, which is an hallucinogenic uh, drug derived from the Mexican cactus peyote. And uh, German researchers, as well as such from uh, England as, and the US, were eager to find out about these uh, actions of these kind of uh, bizarre states of mind inducing substances. And uh, however, uh, the two main uh, treatises about uh, experiments with mescaline in relation to their psychological action uh, came to the conclusion that there was no real connection to the biography of the experimental subjects or the psychodynamics of the experimental subjects and so on. So that was their conclusion. Uh, however, uh, that might have been wrong because they gave the subjects an injection of 400 milligrams of mescaline, which kind of catapults you in a more or less psychotomimetic state, which is not really a low dose 
thing. It's a more a high dose thing. And also by the intramuscular injection, you induce a kind of harsh onset. And so the people had to cope with their psychodomimetic uh, feelings and, and alterations in the sensory sphere. And therefore, uh, they might not have detected these kind of personal uh, biography related uh, visions and, and uh, other experiences. Another problem with these experiments in relation to psychotherapeutic use was that they might have not realized the psychodynamically relevant contents because of having given their subjects just one injection. And with this high dose, they had to cope with it and they couldn't kind of navigate into in the experience. So we had to wait until the discovery of Albert Hofmann's LSD in 1943 and his own experiments, self-experiments at first. So just to mention that, the so-called bicycle trip, what he had when he was taking consciously 250 mics, which is kind of a high dose of LSD in, a, in another self-experiment, in his second self-experiment, he was getting kind of crazy and on a kind of horror trip. And he was, because of that, he was trying to drive home to consult with a doctor. And this was a really harsh trip. So the so-called bicycle day, which is kind of uh, done as a festivity today, it's about a horror trip of the discoverer of LSD. So <laughs> I'm, why I'm mentioning that? This is because the later experiments in a systematic fashion at the University of Zurich Psychiatric Clinic in 19. Uh, uh, 47 were just conducted with very low doses because they don't want to catapult their experimented subjects into a psychotic state. So they gave them, in fact, in between uh, 30 and 50 micrograms, which is kind of a low dose. What they found is with, I think, uh, 36 uh, subjects, they found that they were immediately into their biographical stuff, into their traumas, into kind of dreamlike experiences where they experienced a lot of memories from the past as well as actual conflicts in a symbolic kind of uh, transformation in their mind and in their visions or inner visions. And so therefore this publication of Werner Stoll, uh, which was by the way, the the son of the uh, laboratory director of Hofmann, and he was a psychiatrist. And so uh, this publication ignited a kind of sensation uh, among the psychotherapists at the time, because they were immediately uh, recognizing that these substances might be helpful in psychotherapeutic maneuvers as psychoanalysis, which became prominent at the time. And so in the 1950s, there were a lot of researchers worldwide uh, doing research in this low dose approach using these substances to kind of induce a daydream like state of consciousness with, with intensified emotions and intensified visual imagery. However, they came to the conclusion that if you give too high of a dose, the people might go into a psychotic fragmentation of the experience instead of having a kind of continuous flow of their experiences, which is in the low dose range, also obviously integrated with their affectivity or their emotions. And so that was the marks the origin of the psycholytic approach. 
to give you a little bit further of this interesting history, so one point was that Hans Karl Leuner, a prominent professor of psychiatry and psychotherapy in Germany, became fascinated by using daydreams in psychotherapy. And he was looking out for substances which might intensify these daydream kind of imagery and uh, the feelings involved. And so this was the reason why he picked up LSD and tried it in his patients to intensify their daydream-like imagery. That is the first origin. What he found is that the people had intensified feelings, intensified imagination, also cathartic experiences, kind of beginning to cry, beginning to laugh and stuff like that, so that the affectivity or the emotions could be let free and they can get rid of a lot of their traumatic tensions, so to say. So he found that might uh, be an, uh, an adjunct to intensify and deepen and even shorten psychotherapeutic processes. So the other origin was by a uh, person from England, uh, a psychiatrist and psychotherapist from the Jungian School of Thought. Um, it was Ronald A. Sanderson, who worked at Powick Hospital uh, uh, in the UK, and he uh, did some exper experiments with LSD, more for psychopathological reasons, not for therapeutic reasons, in the beginning. And he found that after these experiments, some of the more neurotic characters in his uh, under um, among his uh, experimental subjects were getting a lot better after taking LSD. And so he came up with the idea, okay, that might be a, a substance which can be used in psychotherapeutic maneuvers. These were the two origins of the psycholytic approach. And we also have to mention in this connection that um, the word psycholytic has some similarity, obviously, to psychoanalytic, so to say. But uh, psycholytic means essentially soul loosening and, and kind of um, softening of the character structure and also the psychological defense mechanisms, which makes the people much more open, especially those which have been called treatment resistant in, resistant in the past in respect to psychotherapy. And uh, just to conclude this historical chapter about the origins, we have to mention that Ronald Sanderson at the first uh, uh, European symposium uh, about uh, the use of LSD in psychotherapy, which was organized by Leuner in Göttingen, he showed up and came up with the term psycholytic or psycholysis in short, and psycholytic therapy what was in fact then accepted by all the attendants of that conference, and so it became the technical term for this method of therapy and has been included in the Oxford Dictionary even. Yeah, yeah. I think it's really interesting there that you mentioned that in the first experiments when they were having quite high doses and even Hoffman's really bad trip on um, Bicycle Day, that, well, North America now has really adopted the common practice of this really high dose stuff. Whereas from what you seem to have suggested, the majority of the efficacy seems to have been slightly lower doses. So can you think of a possible reason why the Americans have now adopted this higher dose and neglected the psycholytic approach. Yeah, it is a pretty interesting. If you look in the past, uh, it is obvious that the Europeans hooked very much on the psycholytic approach because it could be easily implemented in more traditional uh, uh, models and uh, psychotherapeutic methods. So it was obviously 
uh, that you could use it in psychoanalytic therapies and uh, having the people on the couch and 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 telling about their uh, ongoings and so on and the experience. So that was a classical pattern, so to say. So the history of the psychedelic approach, it's a little different. It has also two origin or at least three. Uh, so first off, uh, um, cultural anthropologists have found that the traditional use of the mescaline containing peyote cactus in the US, uh, which is quite distributed even in the former times. Right now, the Native American church, which is using this uh, cactus as a sacrament, has 400,000 members. So it was quite an impactful thing. But however, the cultural apologists, they found that uh, some people which were being kind of psychologically dysfunctional or even sociopathic or alcoholics, they sometimes get a lot better when they partake in these uh, mescaline cacti-inspired Indian rituals. And so that was one thing they had in mind. And another thing which was more important and more impactful was that in the year uh, 1953, uh, two Canadian psychiatrists were sitting together and thinking about their treatment-resistant alcoholic patients. And they came up with the idea, oh man, they talked about to each other and said, okay, Sometimes people experience, if they are alcoholic, a so-called delirium, delirium tremens, tremens, an enormous, enormously delirious and hallucinatory and anxiety-provoking state, which is really very unagreeable. You, you couldn't even grasp it with the term horror trip. It's even worse. And so, therefore, some people which have gone through that experience uh, stay away from alcohol. So their thought was, you know, in these times, they were much about shock treatments and stuff like that. So they came up with the idea, okay, let's shock a patient with a substance which induces a kind of anxiety-provoking hallucinatory delirium. And in these early years, they had not very much knowledge about LSD, especially about the psychodynamic contents and stuff. So they came up with the idea, okay, let's use LSD. It's untoxic, and it can induce a kind of hallucinatory delirium. And so let's try it on our patients. So they gave it to some alcoholics and they found that some of them uh, became abstained from alcohol, abstinent. However, when they interviewed them, they were not into a delirium. They, they were reporting about intense psychological experiences, even ecstatic experience or uh, touching the mystical realm of the inner, uh, the, the human experience. And therefore, they realized that these guys had transformational uh, personal experiences, which even changed somewhat their personality pattern. And so they could stay away from the alcohol. That was one origin, or the second one, so to say. Then these guys, uh, sh shortly later, they realized, okay, the Indians have done that too. So Osmond, one of these psychiatrists, even participated in the Indian rituals with the peyote cactus to explore what they are doing. And they became very much proponents, Abram Hoffer and Osmond, about the treatment of alcoholics with that drug, because it somewhat uh, gives the alcoholic, uh, he could kind of look through his false self so to say, and realize what's at his core. And that might be even intact as somewhat in every human. So they could contact their intact core and could get much courage to, to change their life to the better, for the better. 
another origin of the psychedelic approach was an also a chance finding by an anesthesiologist at Chicago University in the US. And this guy was doing studies on different pain medications in cancer patients. And he was a smarty at the time because what he used is an active placebo. It means he does not give them a sugar pill with no action at all comparing it to pain medications, which give you side effects, which might suggest a lot of placebo effects because of that. So he gave people an active placebo means a substance which induces some effects, maybe even irritating, but does not have any influence on pain. Okay, good idea to, to kind of minimize the impact of side effects on the results. And what he found is that the people which were doing the LSD need less pain medication afterwards and looked much better in respect of their psychological uh, outfit. And then he came to the conclusion, oh, let's interview them. And then he interviewed them and he found also a kind of religious conversion experiences. And also they were going into kind of experiences like a near-death experience. So their, their death anxiety was very much reduced. And this was the reason why they are very uh, much less under stress. And so therefore they don't need so much pain medications because they had a more relaxed attitude toward death. That was the second origin. And um, the, the alcoholics model was uh, picked up by US, US researchers, which created out of that, together with the Canadian researchers, the so-called psychedelic approach using one or two high dose sessions, especially with LSD. And so that the people make these kind of personality transforming experiences to stay well from alcohol. However, it was in the beginning, it was embedded into a psychological psychotherapeutic treatment in clinics. And so it was a little bit different from what is done today, where the people just show up at the uh, clinic for the session and maybe the night afterwards, but have not much more contact. What has been found, and this is a serious limitation of the psychedelic approach, uh, just a certain number of the subjects have really profited and if you do it in a controlled experiment with, for example, comparing it to another active placebo like uh, dextroamphetamine or something, instead of giving them LSD and you do two groups, you don't find that much of a difference. And the, the later experiments, there is a rumor in the psychedelic world to, of today even that uh, the the research with the psychedelic therapy approach in the US has been stopped completely in 1966 when uh, the Zandos company was retracting LSD from the market and LSD has been forbidden or prohibited by uh, laws in the US. This is not true. There have been three uh, methodologically rigid trials which have been financed by the US government to find out about this promising treatment of alcoholism. But all four studies failed to prove a significant betterment uh, if compared with the control group, if the treatment is compared to a control group. So the psychedelic approach was left because it did not show efficacy especially in the long run. This is also what the researchers have found. These kind of 30% which might profit from it in a, to a certain degree, they came back to their alcoholic attitude uh, somewhat later if they are not supported. 
So what we can learn from that is that there has to be support in advance during the session itself and the, the days or weeks afterwards, and then the months afterwards. If you don't do the support, they kind of go back to their usual routines, which is also very deeply embedded usually in the neurobiological patterns of the brain. Yeah, I, thank you, Torsten. I think it's interesting there that you said that the recent studies that have come out with the psychedelic approach aren't actually showing the effects that we would have would have thought, I think. Um, but something else that I quite like there is that you started to mention terms like mystical and near-death experience when we're talking about the psychedelic approach, which you didn't really mention when we were talking about psycholytic therapies. So I was just wondering if you might be able to talk a little bit more about the similarities and differences and the modes of action, I suppose, of these types of therapies. Yeah, uh, it is interesting so, uh, because there are differences and uh, today uh, people tend to not look at them uh, seriously. And um, I think the major difference is that with psycholytic therapy, you are using these low doses. This, the sessions itself, especially with LSD, are kind of shorter because of the low doses. And you are also looking out for this daydream-like state which activates your emotion somewhat, but you're not overwhelmed by it. Your ego is altered in its functioning somewhat, but you are still able to steer the experience by what has Hans Karloiner has called the reflecting ego remnant. So there is a certain instance in yourself, in your brain, in your psyche, which is which allows you to reflect on the experience, to communicate the experience, if you think it's appropriate to your therapist, which is in the room always. Um, and uh, you are also able to steer the experience, to navigate into the, in the experience somewhat. This is different to the psychedelic approach where you're kind of ego is very much dissolved, your defense mechanisms are somewhat eliminated, and you, you, the main goal of the psychedelic therapy is to enable the person to have that kind of um, a mystical, like a mystical uh, experience of connectedness with everything, even with himself. And this might kind of irritate the brain in a certain fashion, like a kind of let's say, soft shock therapy, so to say, because you are really altering your functional connectivity. It means how the areas of the brain work together in a very harsh way. And this might uh, kind of disrupt the encrusted thought patterns and psychological patterns or organizations which you have uh, um, uh, in your um uh, function in the functional connectivity of your brain, how the areas where brain areas work together and how that is structured. This is very much altered by a high dose of a psychedelic. This is different with the low dose approach where you just alter the brain in a certain way and you alter the ego, but you don't dissolve it. And so it may be true that the uh, ego dissolution experience, which you might experience with the psychedelic approach or the high dose approach, um, might have a, a harsher or deeper impact onto the brain and its uh, functional connectivity patterns, but you are not able to work with your ego on the stuff which is upcoming. 
so to say, your memories and so on. Because you're not out for your memories, you're not out for your personal problems, you are out for transcending them in a certain way. That might be helpful because a lot of depressive people, for example, they feel isolated from the environment. They feel isolated from the others. They feel isolated from their feelings. They feel isolated from their body. And so therefore, that might be very useful to ignite such a process. But if you are not working with it on a daily, let's say weekly basis with your psychotherapist afterwards, and maybe with repeated sessions, you might not reach the state of durability which you're wishing for. You know, it doesn't make that much sense if you have a depressive having not no depression for three weeks and then he's back there. You know, it does not make sense. And usually it's an obvious thing that people need time and interpersonal intensity to change in the long run in a durable fashion. And so it might be better to use lower doses and enable the people to have their ego somewhat available to work through their issues and find new perspectives and also new intentions, how to change themselves in a realistic fashion. But this is a very kind of careful and uh, um, time consuming work, you know, which you have to, what you have to do. For every serious psychotherapist, it's obvious that it just works that way. This is how psychotherapy is structured. Even short-term psychotherapy needs kind of 20 hours or so. But the usual way in Central European countries is that we expect psychotherapy to be one year, two years, three years. And if you have some some psycholytic sessions in the process, and with psycholytic therapy, the approach is about uh, five to 25 session, sessions in the course of your psychotherapy. But the psychotherapy is the main thing, and you're just giving a little bit of spice into it, so to say, to intensify and deepen and maybe shorten the psychotherapeutic process. That's a lovely analogy you've used there right at the end. And I just want to talk about something that seems to be brought up in quite a lot of the discussions we have, which is where does MDMA fit within a lot of these things? Because we always talk about it's not really a psychedelic, it's technically an intactogen. And recently, America has had a lot of hype around MDMA-assisted psychotherapy. So I wanted to ask you, where do you think MDMA would fit in on this scale, I suppose, of psycholytic on one end and psychedelic on the other? Yeah, if we really take care about the use of these terms, so the term psychedelic is more about mind manifesting, means that you lose your personal ego and feel oneness with a mind at large, as Aldous Huxley, a proponent of that approach, has named it. It means you're kind of going out of your tiny ego and realizing how large consciousness and also life, the stream of life, is and can be. And that is a very essential experience. But this is about losing your ego to experience this kind of mystical state of oneness and sacred and luminosity and so on. So I think it has been proven even by a significant publication that MDMA is not doing that. 
and that the success with MDMA-assisted psychotherapy is not dependent on any kind of ego dissolution experience or mystical experience. Even that has been proven in empirical studies. And so therefore I would think, because MDMA is also giving you a dreamlike imaginary state, it is also intensifying your emotions. It gives you access to traumatic or other memories. And so therefore it would very much fit into the psycholytic approach because it has no ego dissolving qualities. And uh, more recently, I sat together with Rick Doblin, one of the proponent of uh, MDMA assisted psychotherapy in his garden at his house. And we were discussing these issues. And I said, Rick, please realize uh, MDMA is much more a psycholytic drug than a psychedelic drug. It somewhat and this word term psycholytic, in my understanding, and in the Oxford uh, Dictionary understanding, it means soul loosening. So softening of the psyche so that you have more access to more parts of it. And this is the psycholytic approach, so to say. And there is no ego dissolution. So therefore, I would think uh, that it fits into the psycholytic paradigm. And um, as our the title of our recent publication, uh, lower dose psycholytic therapy and neglected approach shows that it is a kind of miracle to me as a European that everybody is about psychedelic, psychedelic experience and ego dissolution and so on. And they even try to correlate that with therapeutic su success and so on. But it is a little bit crazy to me because the psycholytic approach has been much more established, by the way, especially in the UK, where they had five clinics where that approach has been done in the 1960s on a regular fashion. And they also had more than 70 outpatient therapists working with LSD in the psycholytic manner. And so I think we really have to look up for this approach. And the, the more recently, there was an, an, a TV documentary features by Arte, the European TV program, and it was about healing drugs. And interestingly enough, one of the former, I could say, proponents of the psychedelic approach, which is studied in Germany too in depressives, uh, was concluding at the end of that uh, TV uh, movie uh, that we need more context, more sessions, more psychotherapy than it is used right now with the psychedelic approach, which is kind of giving you two sessions in advance. Uh, I mean, two psychotherapy sessions, then the uh, psilocybin session, and then two or three sessions uh, in conventional psychotherapy afterwards. This is not a long process. This is more a single uh, intervention, so to say, which has not the appropriate success, as it seems these researchers realize right now. Even if there is a significant betterment immediately after the session, the people usually fall back into their Gewohnheiten, uh, into their uh, uses uh, or, or the everyday kind of behavior which they had adapted before. Thank you very much, Torsten. Um, and I wanted to ask, can you think of any disadvantages to using psycholytic therapy? From what you've just said, if I had to guess, one of the big disadvantages might be financial issues, because you said that we need a lot more therapy afterwards. But I'd be interested to see if you can think of anything else. Yeah, and so disadvantages of the psycholytic approach may be uh, that you need more time, you need more effort, you need more patience. <laughs> yeah, and uh, you, uh, it means 
it is a longer process, which might be more cost expensive. Uh, but if you could realize this psycholytic approach in a group setting, that might be different because you then you need two therapists per 12 people or so. That might be working well. And uh, there's also an alternative which has been done uh, in quite a few clinics in the 1960s, which is you have five treatment rooms where people are on their trips with a so-called sitter on their side. And the lead therapist is going through the rooms successively, that room 15 minutes, the next room 15 minutes, and so on. So that one lead therapist with an appropriate certificate education uh, can do five patients at the same time or in parallel. That is the one uh, approach to minimize the costs. Another um, dis potential disadvantage is that uh, if you do uh, sessions on a regular basis, even with low doses, people might become too labile, so to say. They might have more, a little bit more flashbacks. They might become weak in respect to their ego structure or ego strengths. And that can be a disadvantage, but this can be easily coped with by uh, doing uh, more distances or putting more distances in between the sessions, then you're out of that problem. So you have to observe your patients. And in the former times, the, it, the approach was mainly um, used in clinics, in clinical environments, means the patients were on the ward with Sanderson's clinic, for example, or Leuners in, in, uh, in Germany, as they were on the ward for six to, six to 10 weeks. And so you can introduce them in a very controlled environment, uh, introduce the patients to this method and give them, let's say, five, six sessions during that period in the clinic. And then you invite them for two days later on, a few times during their long uh, range psychotherapy uh, um, uh, process uh, by the, their outpatient therapists and you just invite them for a few sessions again for these two-day segments. It's called stationary interval treatment and has been used in the UK as well as in Germany, as well as in Czechoslovakia, uh, where, by the way, uh, was the most extensive use besides the UK of the psycholytic approach in a few clinics, as well as by 20 to 30 outpatient therapists in the 1960s, uh, by the way, up to the to 1980. So because they didn't have an hippie movement and they were not under the international laws, which the US have initiated to prohibit these substances. Fantastic. Yeah, that's a, that's a really interesting approach there that you've just mentioned. And you mentioned a little earlier in that about uh, possibilities of group therapy. I was wondering if you might be able to talk a little bit more about if there's been any past experimentation on group psycholytic therapy. Yeah, so uh, first of the uh, people in Latin America, especially in Argentina, where psychoanalysis was uh, also very big, and so they could easily implement psycholytic therapy into their frameworks. And uh, it seems that these guys have also published in a pretty interesting book, Psychotherapia con Alucinogenos, uh, where they give an outline of their group approach. And it seems that these guys were very uh, elaborate in using it in groups. And they have also done some empirical studies, not very much uh, in respect to methodology and results, but uh, their clinical experience was enormous. 
And it seems that they have uh, very successfully worked with a group approach where they have also given lower doses of MDA, not MDMA, with MDA, which is a kind of a mix of an hallucinogenic and entectogenic drug, uh, and also with LSD, mescaline, and psilocybin. Um, however, in Europe, in the UK, there was an, um, an associate of uh, Ronald Sanderson uh, called Spencer, and he was uh, also doing an exp experiment with group therapies um, in the, the Powick Hospital, where they have given the people um, low to medium doses of LSD, and they have allowed them to even act out their aggression and any kind of their feelings. And uh, what they have found, for example, they gave them puppets to to beat on and stuff like that, really crazy. But uh, however, they, it seems that it was a very successful endeavor and could be this approach could be used in the future. It, it was not just about these beating puppets or so. It was also about interpersonal interactions of the participants and so on. And uh, later on, the uh, we are coming to... Uh, something. Uh, so the, the psychedelic approach, as I've mentioned in the US, I have to mention that in that connection, what, what showed up later on. So uh, they came to the conclusion, okay, we can't prove easily that the psychedelic approach alone is leading to durable results, because they were unable to prove that with these methodological sound trials in the late 1960s and early 70s. So even the, the group, a group around Stanislav Grof and Panke and Bill Richards were not able to prove it because their results were not significantly different from the control group. Now, however, they, they concluded, and that was expect, expressed in the introduction of uh, the uh, dissertation of Richard Jensen, the latest PhD candidate from that group, uh, they called it the psychedelic approach, their conclusion. They came to the conclusion, okay, we need more sessions. We might also make use of the psychedelic approach, but embedded in a psycholytic setting, so to say. So it means we are working on these personal and interpersonal issues with the patient in a much more patient and and. Uh, uh, long-term fashion, so to say, but we can also implement some uh, psychedelic sessions to, to use also these experiences to further the patient's progress in, in their psychotherapies. And they called it the psychedelic approach. But this was just a proposal. It was never realized by them. Uh, later on, uh, in Switzerland, uh, there were a few psychiatrists in the late 1980s or the mid-1980s, which came together, which were interested in the use of LSD in psychotherapy. And they founded the Swiss Physician Society for Psycholytic Therapy, which still exists today. And what they did is in their experimental way of using these substances, because they in, in the period of 1988 to 1988, 93, they got a special permit from the government to use LSD and MDMA in their psychotherapy practice, outpatient practice. So they were, e they were eager to experiment and find the optimal approach to heal their patients. And they came up with an approach kind of similar to the psychedelic approach, but in this case also involving MDMA. And so they were using doses in the, in the moderate medium range. It means you could go into the mystical realm, 
but you're not pressed to, as with the psychedelic approach, which uses very high doses, up to a thousand mics, you know, which is kind of a five-fold overdose if you want, you know, but some people are kind of resistant and they need these high doses to get rid of their ego if you want. Um, however, these guys were very successful and they built up a kind of tradition which still exists today and they have created their own, I would say, in respect to terminology, psychedelic approach of using these substances. They also use both substances, not at the same time usually, but uh, they use MDMA, so an intactogenic drug, a psycholytic drug, if you want, and uh, LSD in a psychedelic fashion, which allows for the mystical experiences, but don't do not press you to go into it. And uh, we can also mention that um, it's since the year 2000, 2010, the, the Swiss society have also, or researchers of them, uh, therapists have done uh, conducted some studies with MDMA in the treatment of PTSD, as well as with LSD in the treatment of people with a life-threatening diagnosis. And these trials were very successful, so the Swiss government even were eager to allow this kind of therapy to be used by more psychiatrists. And meanwhile, the uh, Swiss society, which I've mentioned, is organizing uh, all the people which have gotten already this special permit. And right now they are nearing 40. 40 people have a special permit to work with MDMA, LSD, and psilocybin in Switzerland in outpatient offices as well as in clinics. And so the psychedelic approach, this kind of synthesis between the psycholytic and psychedelic approach is still at work. Awesome. Yeah, it's really interesting to see that there's been some quite success in this combination therapy. I also think it's quite interesting that you said that you've also been introducing the MDMA therapy alongside of this in the yeah. Swiss society. Um, I wanted to ask, do you have any concluding remarks or anything else you'd like to talk about? Yeah, uh, it is interesting. And this is a kind of historical phenomenon, which I still I'm working on explaining it. Uh, why is why became the psychedelic approach so dominant in the studies today or in the more recent studies? Um, so there are a few features of that approach which are kind of tempting or seducing. Uh, these are this is you can reach results or betterments even if just short term uh, with just one or two sessions so it looks like very effective or even if cost effective if you want that's one thing the other thing is that we have had such a long time of no success in or no no progress in respect to new therapies in psychiatry. So there were 30 years of neurobiological research, which are now behind us. And we see that we have not coming up, we came not up with any new therapeutic methods during the last 30 years, no revolutionizing medication and so on. So I think right now the people are can be ignited in their enthusiasm by a working method very easily because they're they, they they very open to it. They are even, they, they want to find something, you know, and this is producing a kind of over enthusiasm because of all this 
all the hungry people, so to say, which are looking out for uh, new therapeutic methods which haven't been found during the last uh, 30 years. That's also one reason. But the main reason, which I know of, in fact, is that we sat together in the 1990s, I'm in the field for, for nearly 40 years now, um, and we sat together in the 1990s and we had no money from the government or any other institution. So what we had were a few US millionaires which were able to finance a few studies. And so we had to look out for how can we prove that the psychedelics can have a good impact on mental health conditions. And we were looking out for cheap trials, so to say. So we don't want to go into trials for over two years, you know, in, a, in these patient full, uh, uh, patients full uh, um, psycholytic approach. And so we said, okay, let's do a trial with the psychedelic par paradigm to prove that in an easy way, uh, in respect to methodologies, because you don't have to observe the people so long, and you don't have that much of interferences in the process, because you're looking for a process of, let's say, four weeks, yeah, at, at most three months, you know, because you're doing a follow-up study and looking at the patients and so on. So I think that was the main reason, because it is much cheaper to do this short-term research than to do long-term research. And so it was a very effective measure at this historical point in time to prove that there might be a treasure trove there and we can get it or get access to it. And this somewhat worked, um, but uh, made us uh, made, made us focus on the psychedelic approach, approach a bit too much. And there's also this seductive feature of having a magic bullet where you can eliminate the mental health crisis. And people are talking that way, especially if it comes to the slide for the investors. And right now we had even more than a billion dollars into psilocybin in therapy in respect to stock companies, uh, stock, uh, companies at the stock market. But what you see right now is that they are down in respect to their worth to 10 to 20% of what they were originally uh, uh, estimated. And so therefore the psychedelic paradigm, I think will not go through and will, especially in Europe, will not, it, it will not make it into the market, especially not if it comes to payment by usual health, health insurance companies, because it is not effective enough and also very expensive. And you might have heard about the trials where they have compared usual antidepressant drugs, which are not very effective, they have very low efficacy, compared to psilocybin uh, given in a therapeutic setting, but with not much psychotherapy. And these comparison studies have shown that they, they are not that much of it, there's not that much of a difference. But one difference is that if you give an SSRI antidepressants for let's say 100 days, you will lose $100 on that. But if you wanna give them two psilocybin sessions in an appropriate environment, you might have to use $5,000. So how do you wanna justify an efficacy in the range of a conventional antidepressant drug, which costs 50 times more? 
You could argue, oh, it has less side effects. That may be true, but 50 times. It's not 1.5 times more, it's 50 times more. And I think that the health uh, insurance systems would not, would not accept such a method. And if they don't accept it, it will not be widely distributed. You might find it in some private clinics or stuff like that. And therefore, I don't think that there is a very promising future for that approach. And as I have mentioned, we need more context, more sessions, and more psychotherapy. And this points to the fact that we have to be much more patient with our patients. And we need much more fine-grained work on their issues than just dynamiting away their functional connectivity patterns in the, in the brain for some hours and maybe some days or weeks afterwards. And therefore, I see a bigger future for the psycholytic approach, which is much more humble and looks a little bit less effective, but might be more effective in the long run. Fantastic, Torsten. Thank you so much. I love that phrase, more patience for our patients. I think that's a really brilliant one. <laughs> and I think we'll leave it there for today. As yeah, always, thank you, thank you very much for listening to the Psychedelics and Medicine podcast with me, Ben Clayton, and our wonderful guest, Dr. Torsten Passy. If you enjoyed this episode, please make sure to follow us on Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, and your preferred streaming platform to keep up to date on new monthly episodes. All social information can be found in the description. That's all for now. Thanks and take care.